It's common to hear prophets of doom warn of dangerously overpriced markets. In fact, just such a warning was issued again in late January by the famed Jeremy Grantham, much as he did the January before. More often than not, heeding such warnings has been costly, since the very assets said to be poised to tumble instead just continued to power higher, leaving the cautious in their wakes. But what if this time the odds are stacked so one-sidedly against further gains that the warnings are justified now? Might U.S. stocks, bonds, real estate, and maybe even commodities now simultaneously all be in super bubbles, just like those that preceded the U.S. stock market crashes of 1929 or 2000, or the crashes in the Japanese stock and real estate markets of 1989? If so, what steps could you take now, not only to protect, but possibly even to grow your wealth? Stay tuned as we explore all this and more right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm your co-host, Roshan Langani, here as always with Adrian Nicholson and Eric Olson. We've got a great episode for you today. Uh, Adrian, are you, how are you feeling? You ready to go? Anything new last week for you? Uh, nothing new last week. I'm looking forward to this episode. It's going to be a really solid one. It's going to have a lot of great content. I can let Eric lead us right into it. All right. Well, fantastic. So, uh, dear listeners, today our topic is super bubbles and various asset classes. And we're going to spend some time, first of all, defining what that actually means and then talk about uh, what, whether or not we are in one or more super bubbles and then talk about if we are or are we are not, then what are the implications of that for how you ought to grow and protect your wealth? And the reason that we think this is important is that there was, um, there's always talk about where we stand in the markets, whether this is a favorable or unfavorable time to be investing. That's a constant source of, of conversation for all of us. But it's particularly, I think, uh, awakened when one of two things happens. Number one, when we have a, a sudden downturn or a, a relatively swift downturn like we had in the early part of 2000 in response to the, the COVID pandemic, and then also, as we've just had more recently here from, let's say, essentially mid-November in some asset classes since mid-March, maybe, of 2021 in various other asset classes. And people start to wonder, wow, is the, is the party over? Uh, is the long bull run that we've been part of over? And so that awakens a lot of conversations as well. And one such prominent uh, catalyst for these conversations is a fellow named Jeremy Grantham at GMO. And he published, as he is wont to do each January, another forecast of where things stand, both on the, um, both on the basis of their asset class forecasts, but also just on a big global picture. And he invoked the term super bubbles. And uh, in fact, the article is titled, Let the Wild Rumpus Begin. And so as a result, suddenly the airways lit up and the, uh, the blogs lit up and all sorts of things like this lit up. And as for that matter, gentlemen, maybe your emails, your email inbox, and maybe your phones have also lit up recently with clients wondering what's going on and where do we stand? So we thought it's useful for us to reflect on the question, are we in just sort of a normal pullback right now within the context of a normal long-term market? Or are we at really elevated price levels in a variety of categories? And is this initial downturn that we, or this downturn that we've seen, is it just a prelude to something that's much larger? Being able to answer that and then arrive at some decisions about how you might safeguard your portfolio or take advantage of that downturn. Both sides of that question, by the way, are important, but we, we see that as really part of the conversation that we want to have with you, our listeners. 
Yeah, I think um, Jeremy Grantham is very well known for us uh, as far as investment professionals go. And he releases that expectation, as Eric, as you said, annually. So when he, when he talks, people listen. What's interesting, though, is I believe he's been talking about this specific super bubble for well over a year, maybe even longer. Is that, is that accurate? When's mm-hmm. the first time you saw him speak of it or heard him speak of it? Excuse me. Well, in January of 2021, he was warning, though not with as much, uh, uh, not as vociferously as he is now here in January of 2022. Yeah, and I believe I, so I'd listened to an interview with him a little while ago, mm-hmm. so um, I may not recall it correctly, but I believe he had called for something similar, not the same, but similar prior to the pandemic, right? As things were were up in the markets and then you know the pandemic hit and um, then you had a Fed response and that combination had him saying, okay, things have changed, at least temporarily. Uh, and then you know, back at it again in January 2021. I'm not trying to minimize what he say, says at all. No. He's he's brilliant, but um, uh, he has been saying it for a while. And I, I don't necessarily, I'm not saying he's wrong. I guess what I'm saying is if you call for a bear market and a decline long enough, eventually you'll be right. Yes, right? I understand that. His his The article that they published in January 2021 was called Similarly, ominously, waiting for the last dance, the hazards of asset allocation in a late stage major bubble. Now, they weren't calling it a super bubble, but they were calling it a major bubble. And uh, the, the concluding paragraph of their of their executive summary said, but this bubble will burst in due time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, this is a recurring theme for GMO and Jeremy Grantham. There's no question about it. Yeah, and uh, as I as I said, and I want to make it clear to the listeners, I'm not necessarily saying he's wrong. And Eric, you've done a good job, uh, a great job, I should say, with some of the data you've pulled, comparing the the uh, whether we are or whether we aren't, and what the data points were. And uh, I know you're going to share the the data that you have, but do you mind sharing your conclusion? Or and, I, and I'll sort of nudge you in that direction. You were just saying that it makes such a difference what you're using as your source, right? Mm-hmm. What are you using to define uh, a bubble, statistically speaking? And can mm-hmm. you talk about the different, different comparisons you made and what you, what you were saying? Because I think this is very important to uh, how you approach what Grantham is talking about. Sure. All right. So l- let me just, in, in, out of respect for Grantham, and also just to help you, our listeners, understand this, the the article that was published this January was titled, as I said, Let the Wild Rumpus Begin. But the subtitle was Approaching the End of the First U.S. Bubble Extravaganza, Housing, Equities, Bonds, and Commodities. So we're talking about this, although much of my reaction to this is going to start in the area of equities, U.S. equities in particular. Let's just make, in fairness to him, note that he's they they really gmo are looking at this in a in a much more sweeping way than what i did but here's the here's the question um they define they define super bubble statistically and the statistical measure that they use think all of you back to your your uh that statistics class you took once upon a time and the concept of what's known as a standard deviation so just for those of you who said, wait, I never took a stats class. Let me just summarize this in the simplest terms. If you think about the, that, uh, the bell curve, you've heard the concept of the bell curve. And in the middle of that bell curve is the average or the, many times maybe the median. But not everything clusters right at the average or at the median. You have some things that are above the median or mean and other things that are below. So the standard deviation measures at least in a normal distribution, um, roughly, um, r- roughly what um, one thir- one third of the things that are above normal fall in the first standard deviation, another third fall in the in one standard deviation below normal, the next standard deviations out encompass another roughly fourteen percent. Uh, on each side and so forth. So by the time you get out to two standard deviations away from 
the the norm you have really only on on either end about two and a half percent of the overall ab observations left and if you get to three standard deviations now it's just an infinitesimally small <laughs> number of instances so they're saying is three standard deviations in a if we had a truly randomly distributed set of price variations in in various markets stock markets bond markets commodity markets housing markets etc then this three sigma this three sigma um departure from the norm or this extreme departure from the norm would only occur every 44 years as it happens human beings don't behave entirely randomly markets aren't entirely random and so in fact these three sigma events occur maybe every 35 years. And these just quick examples of them, the 1929 bubble, the internet bubble in Japan, the 1989 bubble, and so forth. So, but it all comes back to how you define normal and then how you measure what, what is a standard deviation. So in my own case, in preparing for this podcast, I said, well, what, what are they using? And so they define it as trend and then measure departures from trend. Well, trend can be defined in a lot of ways. Is it trend from the inception of time, at least since the inception of a U.S. stock market or a U.S. bond market or measurable amounts of commodity or housing or what? Or is it the last 40 years? Is it the last 20 years? What is trend? And, and then separately, if you, what if you don't use trend? What if instead you use a moving average of price? So I, I looked at, for example, the 10-year moving average of the S&P 500's price, and then how far or above or below that are we measured again in standard deviations? I looked at a, another tool or, or approach called a growth, you know, projected growth based on a normalized growth rate, and so forth. And what I found was that the choice of your, <laughs> the choice of what you use to define as normal, can can be make all the difference in how truly abnormal you believe we are right now. For example, one of those three measures that I used, I talked about growth, trend, and 10-year moving average. One, one said the markets right now should be a, the S&P 500, which is currently at about, is it, gentlemen, maybe you're looking at it. I think it's 4,300, 4,400, somewhere in there right now. Um, it, maybe normal should be at 1,670. Another would say it should be at 3,000. Still another would say it should be at about 25, 2600. So you can see that depending on your choice of those, that alone would, would uh, make for wide, wide disparities or, or disagreements at least about the measurement of this. For, you know, in, out of respect again for Grantham and GMO, what they've said is what they believe normal should be right now on the S&P 500 is 2500 two standard deviations that's two sigma would be 3500 three sigmas would be 4500 and incidentally in december we were at almost 4800 so that's their argument is we're way way above or at least we were at the point in time in which they were publishing this article way way above uh what should be considered normal yeah there's also so, another technical term that some people might be familiar with and this kind of blurs the lines on what you're saying eric but regression to the mean and if some of the people that aren't familiar with that let's just say you have a stock that's trading uh, just inching a little bit higher it's trading from 50 to 60 for a, a long time it's kind of bouncing around that range and then the past couple of weeks it's just run up to 100 or 150 uh, one concept on theory is regression to the mean that at some point it's going to come back to that original average level of the 50 and 60. And that's something that people are looking at today. Is that going to be something that's going to be happening depending on what market or what sector or what asset you're looking at? Is that a possibility where a regression of the means happening where it's kind of got away from this price level it's been at for so long? Is it going to move back down to this historical average it's been trading at for so long? And in GMO's case, their argument is the way these things usually work is, at least when in normal times, is that when they finally decide, hey, we're way out of whack here, 
when markets sort of get that figured out, they don't just go back to the mean they or the trend in this case is the language that they're using. They overshoot that and they deviate uh, to the, you know, in the opposite direction. It's so it's it can go in either way. <laughs> so at this level, <laughs> you know, you start to say, OK, well, it'd be nice maybe to just get back to trend. Uh, but but will it stop there? Yeah. And uh, one thing that's important as you talk about that, Eric, is um, I believe Grantham has said, looking back, that even in 2009, we were just barely at the uh, barely to undervalued mm -hmm. place. Right. Right. So that being said, um, is that then get just getting back to trend? Is he saying in 2009, when everything crashed, markets got cut in half? We just got back to trend and they weren't cheap. The markets weren't cheap. That's right. That, that's exactly the argument they're making. Maybe it was a slightly, slightly on the cheap side, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't make that full kind of counter move uh, going equally uh, past the trend to the downside as it had been to the upside. It just came back to trend. And the markets, hypothetically, we're in 09. And you're seeing that data and you're saying things aren't cheap. So I'm waiting. Now we are 13 years later. It's never gotten cheap. The markets have got, gone up six times. Right. That's so, a challenge, isn't it? So, and I know you're not, you're not Grantham. So I, I, I'm not asking you to put words in his mouth. But there are two things that I find uh, difficult to, uh, difficult with this. And, and I'm not by any means saying I think the markets are, are cheap or that he's mm -hmm. wrong. I just mm -hmm. have a little difficulty grasping this. The first is um, if you're waiting thing till things are cheap, uh, based on his analysis, you're essentially waiting for when? For the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, it is really, it's, it, that is the predicament. And, and that is coming back to the, um, to those other measures that I was using, maybe a better measure is just, well, what's the 10 year moving average of price is, or maybe what's the five year moving average, some, something else that is more, um, re related to has some sort of recency to it mm -hmm. <laughs> that reflects where you are so that you can at least say, well, maybe I'm not cheap in the big scheme of things, but I'm at least in, in a might in a micro sense, I've gotten cheap. And so now I have an opportunity as part of this overall expense over overall expensive market to buy at a slightly less expensive time. You're absolutely right, though. That is the predicament because right now, for example, and just to say, hey, Grantham has, you know, we, we dinged him a little bit because it, every year, it, it, I think it's fair to call him a perma bear. I don't know that he would say that's fair. I think he would say, I'm not just con or dispositionally bearish. I, I am analytically led to the conclusion of being bearish but he and he fully acknowledges that he's been wrong actually the the language that a lot of these people use isn't that i'm wrong it's i'm early uh, so he did have the housing market he did per correctly predict that that was that was way overdone and he also correctly forecast a decline stemming from the uh from the internet bubble bursting but you know since they issue these seven-year forecasts every year if you look seven years ago so that'd be 2015 at that point in time they were projecting negative real returns over the subsequent seven years for the u.s stock market and in fact you know we're much much higher so not only were they off in terms of you know they they under or overestimated it they were completely directionally wrong and it's conceivable, of course, and which he acknowledges that they may be directionally wrong as well. Now, I, I do think and I don't want to do, do this right now because I want to let you guys uh, have some other input on this. But I do think it's important to to share with our listeners that there's more to his argument than we're just overvalued. He's seeing some behavioral things in the markets that he thinks are also indicative of this this uh, super bubble um, property. And let's come back to the behaviors because I have one other question I want to ask you and get your get your thoughts on. Mm -hmm. I understand the numbers behind it and the statistics mm -hmm. behind it. Mm -hmm. But when you tell me this is a three sigma event, and I, I thought he had said that that's a one every hundred year occurrence. Every uh, 35 years, they say. No, that's when it actually happens, right? Oh, it, it's a greater number for what it's supposed to be. 
yeah, I think they had said if uh, the, their their prediction was that those sorts of events will happen every forty four years if it was a totally random setting, but it doesn't. Yeah. It's not. And so when you when you tell me it's supposed to happen, and I don't expect them to have mm -hmm. a science down to it, uh -huh. but, uh, but when you say, well, this is a um, a, a once in a hundred year event. I'm using a hundred year because I think I'm thinking of uh, uh, Talib in the Black Swan uh, that he's saying, okay. but. Sure. So the, the time frame is not important. But if you tell me this is supposed to happen once every hundred years, but it happens every 30 years, you know, or every 20 years, how useful is that information beyond an intellectual exercise uh, in terms of um, I'm saying how useful is that in, in the practical world? And I have a quote for you when you when you mentioned Grantham being too early. This is by Howard Marks, who's from Oak Tree Capital. He's well known in the investment space. But his quote is. Being too far ahead of your time is in, indistinguishable from being wrong. Uh, yeah, he's talking about it from an investment perspective. But uh, back to my question, can you help me utilize this information when I first see it's supposed to happen every X amount of times, but it happens a lot more frequently? Well, first of all, I want to, I do want to say you're, I, I just now looked in the article and my memory didn't serve me well. So I wasn't early Roshan. I was wrong. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you were right. The two Sigma event is every 44 years, if it's random and every uh, 35 years, if it's not, but the three Sigma event, as you're right, is even rarer still. So, um, but nevertheless, well, we've got more than It's supposed to be every hundred. Yeah, yes. It's supposed to be every hundred, but I thought they'd said it's happened four times in the last 100 years. Well, certainly 1929, 2000, Japan in 1989, mm -hmm. and they would argue also here now. Right now. Okay. Yeah. So, but anyway, coming back to, so restate your question. Um, why do I not throw this analysis in the trash when you tell me something's supposed to happen every hundred years and it happens every 25? Well, I'll take a shot <laughs> at erosion. Four times in a hundred years. I guess I'll take a I, shot yeah, at yes. erosion. I think I, I wouldn't like throw it out the door because I think it's more of a, a data point that people should look at and then just kind of consider it or hold in the back of their pocket saying, all right, if this is supposed to happen X amount of years, let's just see how much exposure I have to like different areas, different sectors, where are my assets and investments all tied up to? And then this kind of brings in the question of just diversification, where let's just say somebody didn't have this data or didn't know that this was going to happen X amount of years and just kind of went with the whole aspect of, oh, the markets had just been going up. Oh, it's not a bubble. I don't have to worry about it. When they where the people that do look at it do consider this kind of make some reevaluate, update their plan, look at their portfolio and say, okay, if this is supposed to happen X amount of years, what can I do to kind of per protect myself? I think is what you can really take away from this at the end of the day. Well, cause I, I guess what I'm thinking is if I'm retiring and you tell me this is supposed to happen every 100 years and I've got 30, 40 years left in my life, why do I care about it? I'm not saying you shouldn't by any means. I'm taking the, I, I'm being the devil's advocate to sure. the extreme right now. Right. Uh, but that is something I think about when I read it, right? When mm -hmm. I read this thing and I'm by, and to be clear to, to both of you and everyone listening, I'm not saying you should throw this no, in the trash. I understand that. But so let me respond to the person who might be saying you should, because there are in fact yeah. some people who say that. So yeah. one argument is, is, well, when they happen, especially if they happen on the cusp of your retiring, they're consequential. So if you had retired in 1928 or 29, you, you would have, it would have taken you a long, 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 long time to see your portfolio come back. If you had retired in 1999, and I have a friend who retired in 1999 and then had to resume working in 2004 because things had come down so much in what he'd assembled, then you know that, that was consequential for him, and he's working until even now, so isn't that? So he extended his working years by twenty-two years. Uh, it's also the case if you were in Japan in nineteen eighty-nine, but there you had jointly a bubble in real estate and in the stock market. Real estate is still down from where it had been by at least twenty-five percent, and that's after its quote-unquote comeback. And uh, and then the stock market is barely coming back to the point at which it, it had reached in 1989. Think about what that did to a generation of retirees in Japan. Now, I think in Japan, more people have had, at the time at least, corporate pensions. But still, 
you know, those, those sorts of things matter. So if we're having, if we're, many of our listeners are thinking about retirement, that's what the show is about. If they were dealt a hand where they were just blindsided by a substantial decline in their portfolio, that would, that would change what they're able to do and what they're not able to do. True. Agreed. So, I mean, I think it's just the, the, it's the magnitude of the consequence that leads people to say, well, if I, I, this is one thing I don't want to get wrong as opposed to just, it happens every hundred years and it's not that big a deal. Actually, it, you know, it seems like it's happened more often, different, different parts of the world. And certainly here in the United States, um, his argument, their GMO's argument would be we're at instance number three in the United States alone in the last hundred years. This, this is something that um, we should try to devote some attention to and give thought to and understand what the implications are. So I, I think I, I wanted to mention a few other indicators that they say beyond just the price levels that they think signify that this is a super bubble. Is this, is this a good time to talk about those? Yes. All right. So one of the things that they talk about is what is known as a blow off top. That is, in the late stages of a bubble, what you see is an even a further acceleration in price levels and in growth of uh, of the mar- whichever market is being examined. In this case, let's say stocks or bonds or housing or commodities. And in our case, the growth rates—if you say 2019, 20, and 21—you had growth rates in those phases, even with COVID hitting where you had somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25% growth rates in some U.S. equity markets on a, on a compound annual basis. That's so far above normal. And so they would use that as, well, that's a warning sign. It's not, de- it's not definitive. It's not every time you have a, a three-year run like that, that that spells super bubble, but it is if you're already at elevated levels and then you get that on top of it, they would say that's a warning sign. Another warning sign has to do with the narrowing of the market. So if you look particularly, let's say, at the NASDAQ 100, the NASDAQ listeners, if you're not familiar with that term, is a, is a subset of the U.S. market, usually large technology-oriented companies, not exclusively, but for the most part. And the, if you take the, the NASDAQ and growth stocks, generally speaking, have been have been having a really fabulous run over the last 13 years, much more so than the general market. But in this latter stage, it, most of it is in what I'll call the fan mag stacks, stocks. Fan mag would be Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. And so if you take those, those stocks out of the NASDAQ and then look at how the NASDAQ has moved, it's been nowhere near the same. So it's been th- some of these, you know, very, very uh, small number of names, although they're gigantic companies. And so when they're assembled within a market capitalization weighted index, it makes it appear that overall the market is healthy. Actually, breadth is quite thin right now. A similar f- demonstration of this narrowing is just the kind of crazy behavior of some, I think I can use the word crazy. Some of our listeners won't like this, and I apologize to you if you're offended by it, but some of the crazy behavior about, let's say, we were talking about meme stocks a year ago, AMC, uh, wh- wh- what was the other one? Uh, GameStop. GameStop we about was the big one, yeah. Yeah, GameStop. The, those those stocks just rose spectacularly, I think, in with companies with very, very few earnings. So what leads to that behavior? Well, that behavior, that indifference to price and to earnings and to real value is also typical of late stage of, of, uh, of bull markets. And in this case, they would say that's a bubble. Here's another example, SPACs. We were, that's a uh, special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs. Basically, they're a blank check company. They raise a bunch of money on, you know, the good name of someone who has a good reputation. And they say, hey, you just write us a blank check and then we'll go find something to buy with it. Well, th- in other words, people are just doing that entirely on trusting the name without any knowledge of 
whether or not the, what will eventually be purchased is worthwhile. The dirty little secret of SPACs is, is that the inside them, the structure oftentimes is that 20% of everything, not just 20% of earnings, not just 20% of upside, but 20% of everything goes to the organizers of the SPAC. So, you know, why would people do that? It's just rife. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm not saying there aren't instances where it makes sense, but it is this m sort of mania uh, uh, detached from sort of rational assessment of what a company is actually worth um, that, um, you know, that that's an, for GMO, at least, is indicative of these kinds of blow off stages. And then the last thing that they'd observe, again, again, this is just additional elements of their argument above and beyond the overpricedness of markets is what they will call the vampire phase. <laughs> so the vampire phase is when you start seeing so many things being thrown against the market and it still won't stop. So for example, you had COVID that attacked the market. That didn't, you know, surely it, and it had an initial very abrupt reaction, as we've talked about many times, from late February to late March of 2020. But coming out of that, even with the pandemic still going strong, and even as recently as Omicron, you know, still taking down a lot of people, uh, the market has just powered higher and higher and higher. Um, you've had the Fed saying, we're going to raise interest rates. Market just seems not super excited about it, but still powering higher. That market, the Fed has also said we're going to ease quantitative. We're going to uh, scale back on quantitative easing. Eventually, we've got to you know taper that down. Market just kept powering forward. So in this case, there's there's this. It seems like it just keeps rising from the dead. That's the choice of the term vampire. So in, in other words, they're they're saying this is not just limited. And I've I've been using only equity markets in this explanation. But but these sorts of things, it's not just limited to price. It's also limited to seeing how market participants behave. And in at least from their vantage point, these behaviors that we're seeing recently are typical typical of the final stages of these these bubbles yeah uh, and the only one i guess there are two things i would i would challenge on there one is um do you remember how they used uh fiscal and monetary policy like saying that the markets sort of shook off covid is only accurate i think when you consider the massive stimulus that yes. was out there, right? Right. Without that, if that was held steady, I don't think the market shake off them, uh, shake off COVID, which they you know, didn't I think before. You're, right. you're absolutely correct. They do. They do lay a lot of the blame for how elevated we are on all of this at the feet of the Federal Reserve, and that would be going back actually all the way. Uh, they would say in this case, at least to 1999 and actually earlier. So you might remember Alan Greenspan, for those of you a little older, in 1996 coined the term irrational exuberance in observing what was going on in the markets. Well, markets got a lot more irrational and a lot more exuberant after 1996, <laughs> and he didn't keep talking about it. And in fact, you had extremely accommodative uh, policy from the Federal Reserve keeping interest rates low and 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 at least that was the main thing there keeping interest rates abnormally low we would say from a market standpoint if markets dictated interest rates we would not have over the last 25 years had the interest rates that we've had so in this case they would say this what's been done particularly since the bottoming of the markets at at the end of the credit crisis in early 2009 until now has has been astonishingly bad uh, overall from the vantage point of what the, ri the rise in prices has, will ultimately inflict as pain on a lot of people, and especially not only the decline of asset values as GMO projects, but also in the difficulty of purchasing a home which is an interest rate driven now it's in terms of you had a 20% rise in home prices, wasn't it last year? I mean, that's, yeah. that's so much. I mean, we think about 20%. Oh, we think about that in the context of the stock market. It's, it's not uncommon in the stock market. I don't know that we've had a year where nationwide, you've certainly had pockets, but nationwide you'd have an average home price increase of 20%. 
what does that do to younger people who are looking to buy a home? Definitely priced a lot of them out. And I know there's uh, there are funds out there that have sprouted up that are built upon the fact that people can't buy homes. They buy mm-hmm. them to rent them out because they know people can't buy them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The single family home model. for rental model is, is exploding right now. Yeah. 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 So uh, that's a But good anyway, point. to yeah, your point, actually... the Federal Reserve, they will say, is largely responsible for this. And federal and the US fiscal policy as well has also contributed to it. But they 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 I think he's more of a Keynesian for our listeners. That's uh, John Maynard Keynes, who had the viewpoint that at times it makes sense for government to spend to try to help the economy get out of a funk. <laughs> uh, and I think he's probably more sympathetic to that view. But the Federal Reserve's policy of this easy money and printing money, he's not sympathetic to that at all. He thinks yeah. they're fools. Yeah. And he's been saying that for a while, right? Yes. Uh, he's. And that's the other side too of this. Um, like I wonder, let's let's say he's right. We play that out. He's right. There's a super bubble. It starts to burst. Mm-hmm. Is the Fed put still there? Right? Will the Fed still protect protect the markets? And if you if your answer is yes, then I think that's a challenge to believing his mm-hmm. his uh, theory. And I'm not by any means saying the Feds are just there to 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 protect the markets they're they're not that's not what their mandate says we we, we could have a whole episode on this back and forth however right. if rates go up too high the federal government will not be able to meet its needs so I whether agree. people people talk about the fed's independence or not um they cannot they have a certain cap on how much they can raise rates and eric on i wish i could remember which episode that was but you previously broke those numbers down and mm-hmm. showed that on on I think it was one of our episodes just talking about the the spending on the way, right? We were talking about modern monetary theory that. with uh, Doctor Luigi Zingales and um, Bethany McLean, and um, yeah. that that was a really great conversation. We just talked about the fact that if if we have a thirty trillion dollar national debt, and you raise interest rates on that debt from 1% to 3%, and then the federal government has to start to cough up, not $300 billion to finance it, but $900 billion or a trillion dollars a year. And people say, well, what, that just sounds like a big number. Yeah, a trillion dollars a year, folks, would be at least 25%, maybe closer to 30% of all of the tax receipts that they're taking in. Uh, at least you know 25 to 30 percent would be spent on just financing past spending it's crazy yeah Yeah. and uh and we also went over this in the episode where we looked at the build back better plan so Mm -hmm. this this theme and we've talked about it on the podcast a couple times in the last six months but this has been the conversation ever since there's been talk of raising rates after 2009. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've, I've mentioned this before. I wish I could remember where I heard it first. But uh, this, the assumption that stimulus is here forever, mm-hmm. right? Just because rate hikes are capped because of the amount that's been spent, mm-hmm. right? And if that is the case, if stimulus on in some form or another, it, if you just assume, look at low interest rates as stimulus, if stimulus is here forever, how does a super bubble burst? Mm-hmm. Yeah, deflate. Well, yes, burst. Burst uh, is is what we're talking about, though. Well, could uh-huh. you see a burst in like pockets, like certain asset classes, certain like individual companies, certain like commodities? Maybe it might not be this overall market where all prices are going down everywhere, but could it just be in like individual areas, which kind of seems to make the most sense on what you said? Maybe it doesn't burst, but it some areas it might well go ahead roshan what were you going to say uh, i'm that would when you break it down to the individual company level i think i think yes that that it that is real very realistic to expect certain companies uh val, you know stock prices go down values go down uh as the market as a as a whole overall as i said i can see deflating and um I'm not trying to make the argument that it's that it's not going to burst at the same time. I feel like as we're discussing this, the more we discuss this, I'm against this. It's not that I'm trying to wrap my head around it. And they're just, yes, to me, um, 
I hold Grantham in high esteem. I think he's he's brilliant. I just find a lot of holes in this in this uh, argument right now. Well, fair enough. <laughs> so the question is, the, the question is, uh, as you pointed out, how much are we willing to ban- uh, gamble, I should say, or bet on the Fed put? So listeners, if you're thinking, what does that term mean? So the Fed put stems from a concept in the options markets known as a, a put option. And essentially what it, when you buy a put option, you pay a bit of insurance money, essentially, against the possibility that the markets will drop. And the, the concept of the Fed put is that you don't need to go out and buy that insurance because the Federal Reserve will provide that insurance for you as it has done over and over and over again. And so why, why concern yourself with a downturn if the Federal Reserve has demonstrated that they cannot they cannot stop themselves from intervening to rescue investors. So if that's yeah. the, if you if you believe that that is a permanent fixture of the markets, then why ever concern yourself with whether or not we're overvalued? Because because so the argument goes, your only your only job is to buy the dips, not not fear the dips, but buy the dips. Period. Yeah, and and I think that's a little extreme as well, right? Just just to, to be out there and have no concern. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if the because a grant, and I wish we mentioned this earlier. So for those who have stuck strong with us, he's talking about almost a fifty percent drop in the markets, mm-hmm. right? So I don't think that that just saying don't concern yourself with a decline is fair. I'm trying to have the conversation of. Is he making a good case for um, a fifty percent decline? And mm-hmm. barring some major, uh, barring like pandemic, something unpredictable event. I mean, we're we're talking about this during the Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So there are unpredictable events out there that can that can lead to that. But just based on his data. Uh, and not using some kind of, uh, you know, as Talib says, a black swan event. I don't. I. I just have a, a tough time uh, agreeing with with that sentence. Well, to your point, <laughs> then, as evidence of that, there there is the incurable instinct within the Fed to come to the rescue. What just happened here? Uh, with this most recent downturn, the Federal Reserve had been expected to raise interest rates this quarter, or at least at their next, after their next meeting, by a quarter, not just a quarter point, but a half point, and, and some thought perhaps three quarters of a point in response to raging inflation, right? The, the, yeah. the, the purpose of, in this case at least, or the lesson that people drew from Paul Volcker's work in the early 80s, 81 and 82, after Ronald Reagan had been elected, the, the two of them, but especially Volcker, said we've got to stop inflation and raised rates. I think the 30-year Treasury went to 18% to try to, to snuff out inflation, and it worked. So the Federal Reserve was expected to raise rates in faster in order to combat this appearance now of not just, the, I'm not saying the superficial appearance, but the emergence of what seemed higher than expected inflation. Well, in response to this market downturn, they've said, well, okay, maybe just a quarter point. (laughs) So again, backing away from doing what they should be doing, I would argue, in order to protect investors. So the Fed put, it seems, Roshan, has not yet died. Yeah, uh, and they they, uh, are definitely have a tough job ahead for them just because uh, inflation is is an issue, right? It, it's mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, we oh, talked no. about this on the modern monetary policy episode. It doesn't appear to be transitory. It appears to have uh, have a little more substance to it. There, there's probably a transitory portion of it, but they've got they've got a tough job to figure out where they've got to do something about inflation. Uh, they've historically avoided uh, cycles of raising rates as oil prices are up, and they've gone you know, prices have gone 
way up with uh, Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And they also um, they also have to adjust what's going on globally. I remember, I think it was in 2015, Dece- I believe it was 20- December 2015, they had their first rate hike since 2009 when everything went down. And they had predicted how they were going to do like four or six. I can't remember how many hikes in 16. And then there was the issue with China. So they, I don't think they did another one in 16 or they did, didn't touch it till the end of the year. Right. So uh, it, we, we could see uh, history rhyming, so to speak, right now with what happened, what happened then. That's that very well could be. By the way, I, I, we maybe should come back to inflation. I, I'm still of the view that there, that I'm still in the transitory camp. I, oh, I do completely. think that there, uh, yeah, I think, well, yes, I would say more so than, than I am. Then, uh oh, we're in, these guys had it completely wrong and we're in for a sustained, you know, five, six, seven type uh, inflation rates. I don't think that's the case. I think we might, I think we're probably going to settle in at three and a half. You're seeing it in vehicles a lot, you're seeing it in food a lot, you're seeing it now in energy prices a lot, but I don't know that those are necessarily permanent things. So anyway, but but that's a that's a different topic. But since you did touch on the inflation piece, I, I do think the Federal Reserve needs to to address it. But I think the more important thing they need to do is to have rates return to some sort of normal level. But they're constrained, as we talked about earlier, by the fact that the more they raise them, the the greater the debt service costs will be at the at the federal level. Yes, for sure. Mm. For so sure. Yeah. let's talk about some of the. We've talked about a number of the contributing factors that is part of their argument that because we're talking about is this real or is this not? So here's a couple other things that they've said are contributing to it. Earlier, I talked about evidence of it by the behavior, but here's what they would say is contributing to this bubble. So I've already, we've already talked about the super easy money policy of the Federal Reserve. Another is if you look back over the last decade... <laughs> at how much retail investors have put into the markets, it's somewhere, I think, uh, using stock or using flows into mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, it's somewhere only, I think, about $45, $50 billion. It's not, it hasn't been, it hasn't been a ton of money by retail investors. So what is driving the prices higher? To a large extent, the, it's institutional purchases and those institutional purchases are coming in the form of, of companies buying back their own stock, by the way, doing so because they can borrow money so cheaply, so they buy back their own stock. Now, first of all, for a variety of reasons, I think this is a good, a good thing that's, that companies can. I think it's a good thing for investors who own those stocks that what otherwise might be paid to them in dividends and therefore would be out of their control, it would be taxed if it's in a taxable account. Instead, if they if companies do stock buybacks with money that they would otherwise distribute in dividends, then then the investor gets the time when they realize that improvement in their their portfolio instead of getting taxed on it right then and there. But but we also have to understand that a large part of senior executives of major corporations the large part of their compensation comes in the form of equity compensation. And so they're strongly rewarded for having their stock price rise. And buybacks are a powerful way of making that stock price rise. So in a sense, I'm certainly not, I don't want to be confused with Elizabeth Warren here, but I would say in a sense, there is sort of a, even though I think it's good for investors broadly, I do want to acknowledge that, that this, uh, this irresistible um, desire for them to borrow money cheaply and then buy back their stock is probably not going to stop anytime soon. If you continue to have relatively low interest rates, this driver, institutional driver, is a powerful thing. And that, it seems to me, Roshan, also is an argument against the, the, it, it may not be an argument against a bubble, but it isn't that we're in one, but it might it might be an argument that we have to worry about that bubble popping because I do think, again, the, the, these buybacks are fueling a lot of that uh, of that price rise. Well, aren't the buybacks a good thing for if you're an investor? Oh, yes. That's like, what I was saying. Like, I, mean, I, I don't I don't uh, 
I don't have a, I can see why they're saying this is a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. And if this were to go away, it would cause things to go down. But once again, if you believe rates are capped, this is not going away anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Yeah. So So what the big threats then that they would say stem from all of this, did you guys look at any of those uh, threats now, the things that are threatening to pop it, but let's put it that way. Yeah, please start with the list. So one is inflation. So if inflation is, in fact, um, if I'm wrong and it isn't transitory and it is there, we're moving to higher inflationary levels, what does that do? That puts pressure on things a lot of ways, but it also has a a direct impact on corporate earnings. Because if they're having to pay, they themselves are having to pay more for raw materials or labor uh, or the commodities that they use, if they're natural resource-based companies, et cetera, if they're having to pay more for all of that, all else being equal, that puts a, that puts pressure on their profit margins, and hence, hence a result. Since long term, equity prices are driven by earnings. If earnings are all else being equal, contracting, then price levels also presumably, if they followed logically, would also contract. So that's that's the inflation. And Eric, just a quick question connection. for this: Wouldn't that kind of be company specific? Because far, let's just take like a technology company that doesn't rely mostly on commodities or just like raw materials versus another company that does where I know like kind of a concept that how to keep pace with inflation would be like equity stocks. Stocks are a good way to keep pace with inflation. But what you're saying is inflation will be overall bad for the markets. It's it's not like an instantly bad, but it puts downward pressure on if it to the extent it puts downward pressure on the earnings, as you said, of some sectors, then all else being equal that and that's an important term there, all else being equal that puts uh, understandably downward pressure on the prices. But to your point, Adrian, some companies like technology companies don't have those raw material uh, pressures as much. And so what, what's a consideration in their case? Well, there's another factor, and that is the interest rates that we've been discussing. So here's, l- let me help our listeners understand why any, any interest rate increase or, ex- or even the expectation of interest rate increases puts pressure more specifically on gross stocks than it does on the rest of the stock market, particularly value stocks. Here's why. Why do we buy? Why do why do people buy a value a, a company that's undervalued? Because they think pretty quickly it has the chance to turn things around, and that its that its price level is is too pessimistically reflecting the actual capacity it has in the very near term to generate strong cash flows. But in the case of gross stocks, it's not because they're right now producing all of this all of this bountiful cash flow necessarily. It's because they're expected in five years and in 10 years, their cash flows will have grown enormously. Their profits and earnings will have grown enormously. And so what you're trying to do is to get in early on those future cash flows. But those cute future cash flows, a, a million dollars or a billion dollars of cash flows 10 years from now can't be treated as worth a billion today. It's discounted, we say. It's, it's expressed in a value today of less than a billion dollars. So what, it, how, what factor do you use to, to say how much less than a billion dollars is that ten, a billion 10 years from now worth today? Well, it is some discount factor which is connected to the cost of capital or said differently, it is connected to interest rates. If interest rates rise, then hence the, the deflation or the deflator rises or the discount factor rises. And hence those future billion dollars are worth less today. Hence, if that they're worth less today, then the stock itself, even at the same multiple of, of earnings is worth less today. So that is, and you've seen that actually since mid November, gross stocks have come down more than value stocks have done. And particularly those so-called disruptive or exponential technology companies, the ones the ones that had zero earnings or almost very negligible earnings, but everybody was just banking on their future prospects and, and raising their capitalization rates to you know, 10, 10, 20, 50 billion dollars. 50 billion dollars on what was it? Um, 
oh, gee, Quantum Space, I think is the name of the company. It, it was a, a company that's Quantum Scape, sort of, yeah. Qu- yeah, Quantum Scape, thank you. So had four years away from even a sale of anything, let alone from from making a profit. It was, I think the, the market awarded it a valuation of $55 billion, which I think, if I'm not mistaken, is bigger than GM or Ford. That's crazy. So that those kinds of stocks have have had a major, major slide, maybe 60% since their peak values a year ago. So the interest rate element, at least, is another contributing factor that as interest rates rise, their view is that that could be another contributing trigger to the, the super bubble in equities, at least, um, unwinding. Yeah, which which. Um... I think is in part why when the invasion happened, you actually saw markets go up, right? And I think I, I think what was going on there is they're saying, okay, well, if this invasion is happening, uh, the Fed can't raise rates at the same pace. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. that's part of what what you what you were seeing. There. Mm-hmm. So, well, listen, there's uh, we. I just want to wrap the the topic of are we in one clearly there's a lot of debate about it and there are a lot of skeptics and we've pointed to you know many there there's a lot of argument on both sides even though we've honed in really uh mostly on gmo and jeremy grantham but now let's talk about if they're right or if they're wrong what are some of the implications so what do you what do you think about that if they're if grantham is right what are some what steps should listeners take or consider taking and you're you're saying if he's right, if he's right, and then if what about right. if he's wrong? Well, I guess uh, what what I was looking at is is right or wrong. Your portfolio allocation and decisions before this has come out should is really what's guiding you, right? So if you're if you're someone who is, um, I, I and I guess another way to put this is is if you think he's right, you want to limit your your equity exposure, right? But the reason I say your your portfolio decision in advance comes would have decided this would have pre decided this prior to even looking at his analysis because if your risk tolerance uh, and your goals put you down a certain path, I don't think this article really deviates too much has has you deviate too much from that path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all right, if you're a pure equity trader. Or, or someone who only invests in stocks, I think you, you read this as a, a starting point and then you do, do additional research to see if you agree with it. And then that's where I think there could be a, a potential significant impact on your decisions. Okay. Um, I, I've got a few comments about it, but Adrian, if you if also have a, a few thoughts about the implications, I don't know. Yeah, um, from the equity prevent. perspective, I think one thing that they brought up is look at cheaper markets where they're saying right now, looking at the US, it's extremely overvalued compared to other markets in other uh, countries, other areas. So begin your research and start looking there at other opportunities. And then obviously valuation is, is very key where we talk, I think like the concept of growth versus value is going to be a really big discussion people are going to be having today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to build on that because I, I think what you just said is really important. So they would say, yes, we've been speaking about this bubble primarily in U.S. stocks and bonds for that matter and housing for that matter and somewhat in commodities and food prices of course but here's here's what they would say is it just as you said the if you look worldwide at valuations what you find is that emerging markets don't have this this extremely elevated price level relative to their earnings, relative to their sales, relative to their free cash flow, et cetera. And particularly if you look within emerging markets for those companies that are indeed value companies, they're on sale in 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 with in relation to their profits and their their cash flows and sales and such, then those uh don't aren't as likely to suffer uh, a a uh, significant price adjustment uh, along with the, the stocks that U.S. stocks, large and small. They'd also say, if you say, well, I'm not that keen on the emerging markets, 
Okay, so if you said, well, what about the developing markets outside the U.S.? While they're not cheap, relative at least to the U.S., in these same valuation measures, the U.K. and Japan are much, much more reasonably priced. So you might look there for possibilities in terms of some of those investments. Then what about on the fixed income side? Uh, this is interesting. Um, if uh, another one of the groups that I follow and we've mentioned in previous podcasts is the group at Research Affiliates, Rob Arnott, Chris Bartman, Jason Chu, and a few others like this. And in their case, they also are saying emerging markets, particularly on the value side, offer the best opportunity. Developed world outside the U.S. is is probably next best on the equity side. But also, they're looking at the, their forecast real returns, meaning after inflation returns to, let's say, a 20-year treasury, is, uh, is a minus five per year in real terms. So Grantham and, and, is, and their group are, are saying, if, to the extent that you put money into the fixed income category or the bond category, you have to look for specialized credit opportunities. You have to look for things that, that manage that accomplish the same outcome as fixed income is intended to, which is to protect capital and to provide some um, yield. But just don't assume that bonds naively are are necessarily themselves going to be the solution for you. And for what it's worth, you know, we can, we've talked about some of those in our previous episode on, on is, uh, you know, what about bonds? We, we dealt with that, that subject somewhat. So, in non-U.S. equities, emerging value in particular, specialized credit, and then some inflation hedges. And there, I think they're thinking about, you know, dabbling in some precious metals and and in real assets of various kinds. That is very useful for giving people, uh, our listeners, a place to look into some of these things. And we will share the links to the uh, white paper that uh, GMO wrote, so you can review that, review that your yourself, um, gentlemen. Anything to add? I personally was a little surprised at um, how much I was not a fan of this, uh, <laughs> as we surprised myself as we were discussing and recording <laughs> this. <laughs> but and by a fan of this, I like I like the episode. I like the discussion of this, but I just uh, have a hard time agreeing fully with what they're what they're saying uh adrian eric anything that you'd like to add i just have a word for our listeners but adrian do you have anything to add um i don't eric you can go ahead all right so listeners you know we've talked a lot about this and this is really a conversation for you to have Uh, If you're self-directed, of course, then I would just want to encourage you to do a lot of reading but if you're instead working with some advisor I would really spend some time talking with uh, your advisor about what their outlook is on this and try to help just get your own thinking uh, clear, more clearly um, situated. You may come to the point of, hey, it's just unknowable and I'm going to accept the risk of of potentially a downturn in these markets and take the long view, especially if you're younger. I think you have a little bit more of that that uh, luxury to do precisely that. And in fact, uh, if you're younger, you may actually relish the opportunity for uh, a super bubble to to pop, a bunch of super bubbles to pop, because then at, you know, at one level, assuming you don't lose your job, you've maybe ha- housing becomes more affordable for you. Maybe as you put money into your uh, retirement plan at work, you're buying assets now, many more shares of the same companies that were were considerably more expensive just a few months or years before, you're able to buy in at much more attractive price levels. So you probably would love a 20-year a period where, where uh, you could buy things on the cheap. But if you're approaching retirement or you're in retirement, I really want to encourage you to have a conversation with your advisor. And if you don't have an advisor and would like one, we're here. And our, our contact information is available on our website, retirementlifestyleshow.com. And uh, reach out to us. That's we're we're helping clients in many many uh, conversations week in and week out, sort through these kinds of questions and determine as a result what sort of positioning they should do with their portfolio to prepare them for a variety of possible outcomes, good, bad, or in between. 
Yeah, I love how you said that because it really does make a difference where you are and what stage of life uh, as far as how closely you should monitor something like this and whether you should or shouldn't make any adjustments. So very good point. I wish we had made uh, made that at the beginning as well. So, <laughs> similar to talking about the data points. But to everyone that stayed strong with us, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Please like, subscribe, tell your friends and family uh, about us. Give us five stars, share. Uh, we really appreciate your support. We'll be back next week. This has been another episode of the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance, by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. Thank you for listening.